You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. destroys a building and claims its victims, but its less obvious ramifications are as indirect as they are accumulative. Destroying a road, a bridge, or a hospital causes the social and economic fabric of an entire region to crumble. Resources become scarce or more difficult to get a hold of. When you leave Sena, you see long queues of cars that go on forever remembers Agnès. You drive up a line of cars, all waiting to get gas. Some wait one or even two or three days to fill up their cars at totally insane prices. In the case of disease and war wounds, the calculation becomes economic. Transport's really expensive. We see people showing up literally at the last minute because they've said to themselves, let's wait and see. The child's sick, but he looks okay and we don't have the money. So we'll give it a while. In Yemen, people die because they delay going to the hospital or don't have enough money to get there. A situation Natalie sees far too often. The wounded patients tended to arrive at least on time. Sometimes they were already dead by the time they'd arrived, but there was nothing you could have done about that. They'd arrive quite quickly, and it just depends on the severity of their injuries. But with the transport difficulties for people who weren't wounded, you, you know, they would have to wait um, time until they had enough money or until they could find someone to give them a transport. And so therefore, people who weren't wounded were often arriving really, really late. Um, we saw so many small children dying of things that were very avoidable that you just needed to have antibiotics for. Um, newborn babies was a particular problem because um, if the mother hadn't been able to feed her baby, then she would wait and wait and wait, and then eventually the baby would arrive, but by the time it got to the hospital, often they died within, within the first half hour because there's very little you could do for them, and, and they were there so, so very late. Another symptom of a broken health system, the MSF teams are witnessing a resurgence in diseases that had disappeared from Yemen. In 2016, an epidemic of cholera breaks out in the country. By the time Deputy Head of Emergencies Ghassan Abu Shard arrives in 2017, the situation appears to have stabilized, so much so that cholera is barely mentioned in his team's contingency plans for the upcoming months. That is, until... A project in Camer in the north is reporting two possible cases of cholera. The next day, it increases from two to six. Cholera patients in the hospital and Kamar are put into isolation. By the third day, the isolation unit is full and a large nearby tent is requisitioned. Then an entire school is taken over to treat the sick. The number of patients cared for by the MSF teams gradually begins to slow down, from over 11,000 a week at the peak of the epidemic to 500 in mid-October. 
We've seen WHO's figures for the country. They're continuing to increase, even in the places where we work. We've got almost empty treatment centers. And WHO is reporting 200, 300 cases exactly where we are, in the same town. As MSF closes down its temporary treatment centers, the WHO's calculations of over a million patients do not appear to correlate with the reality. Everyone's telling us that the doctors, nurses and health workers don't want cholera to be over, because if that happens, they won't get their bonuses or their pay. So they carry on reporting cases. Every day, a guy gets up and says he's seen 15 cases, but nobody's checking. There's no one going to see if these cases are real or not. It's a good system. In this context, it's a challenge for NGOs to supervise and manage their programs. With travel subject to the goodwill of the authorities and therefore severely limited, no organization is able to provide insight into the humanitarian situation at a national level. In October 2018, the United Nations issues an alert stating that Yemen is on the verge of one of the worst famines the world has experienced in modern times. In an interview given to the BBC, images of emaciated children precede a solemn UN declaration. We predict that we could be looking at 12 to 13 million innocent civilians who are at risk of dying from the lack of food. But this is not what people like Terry are seeing on the ground. All I can say is that, personally, I'm not seeing the same high levels of malnutrition I've witnessed in Africa and places like Somalia. And definitely no elements to corroborate a famine situation. Really not. I've seen two actual famines in South Sudan and Somalia in 1992. Both times they were caused by war, where people were trapped. This isn't the case in Yemen. And although food is heavily taxed by the authorities and sold by war profiteers at an extortionate prices, in spite of everything, it continues to be unloaded in Yemen's ports. We have a very partial view of Yemen, admits Agnès. Right now, we're the only NGO with such a massive deployment in the country. We have national and international staff in 11 governments, which is a huge presence. But even so, we're incapable of putting together a countrywide analysis or presenting an overall picture of the situation, quite simply because the perception we get from our hospitals is extremely limited. For lack of anything better, it's the medical centers that are gradually revealing glimpses of what's really happening. Some disturbing, others more optimistic. We had this whole spate of um, malaria cases that I found very bizarre, um, because it's up in the hills, you shouldn't really have malaria, um, because mosquitoes don't fly that high. Natalie tries to find out what's going on with these mystifying patients, all teenage boys, arriving from the front line further north. And it took a while for them to trust me enough, the staff, to, to tell me the real story, which was they were teenage boys that had been recruited or had joined voluntarily to fight with the Houthis. The front line wasn't that far away. The border with Saudi Arabia was not far. So these are the boys that had been sent up to the front lines to, to fight. 
Um, and when they got there, they'd realised that they'd made a big mistake or they hadn't had a choice anyway, some of them. So they kind of got to the front lines and they'd realised that if they could say they were ill, uh, they'd get sent to the hospital. And the staff were giving them a diagnosis of malaria and then putting them into a bed for the night. By sunrise, the child soldiers are gone. At least they might have had a chance of escaping the fighting and not returning to the same hospital riddled with bullet holes. And then they said, but we can't think what else to do. We're not gonna send them back to the front lines. I felt that was one of the best things that they did actually in terms of life-saving. They probably saved hundreds and hundreds of teenage boys. So um, yeah, that was an interesting one that I hadn't, hadn't seen before. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.